This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to a better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McRae. What is a non-fungible token? Is that Bitcoin? Why should you care? We talk about how and why NFT is already in farming and how it will probably be a part of your life sometime soon. Plus, we take a look at Farmer Mac's Ag Lender Survey. Learn what ag lenders, and perhaps you as well, can expect in the 2023 farm economy. Those are our topics for this week's Farming the Countryside, brought to you by Pivot Bio. When it comes to using nitrogen on my corn, the more predictable, the better. That's why I've been using Pivot Bio Proven 40 on my corn for the past two seasons. With Pivot Bio, I know that my corn is getting the nitrogen it needs, no matter the weather. And now that same predictability is available right on the corn seed. Pivot Bio Proven 40 on seed gives growers even more flexibility with their nitrogen. In today's world, we have to look for better sources of nitrogen. And I hope you'll learn more by contacting your local sales rep or simply going to pivotbio.com. What is a non-fungible token? Some of you may know a lot or very little about what that is, but at a recent Ag Lenders Conference, one of the sessions focused on their use in agriculture. If you don't think it will impact you, well, it may already have and you didn't realize it. Joshua Taves is COO and co-founder of NGF Global. He also farms and is involved in ag banking in Wolf Point, Montana. We discussed the technology and the great opportunities there may be for those in farming and ranching. Joshua, you know, you're talking about non-fungible tokens, and I think when people hear that, they may have heard of it, they may not. Is that Bitcoin? What is this? So just begin with that. What is it? And then we'll get into why should I care about it? Yeah, so everybody thinks of Bitcoin, Ethereum, um, things like that. It's it's really, it's a living ledger. It's a it's a ledger of data that gets processed, or, uh, passed from spot to spot, and it's traced all the way through the chain. And that's, that's a basic understanding of what it is. It's data. And so when we think of Bitcoin, it's transferring in a sense of something has value like money transferring it one to the other. But we're going to talk about it in a little bit different way. Is that right? Right. So we, we actually trace our, our grain. Um, we're able to trace anything. I mean, you can attach any data you want to a semi-load of grain and pass it all the way through the supply system. So before we get into that, give me a little background about why did you get involved with this? You're in Wolf Point, Montana, so you're way up there. You're farming, you're ag banking as well. So what gets you started on this path? Yeah, so I actually used to run a couple grain elevators in the area. Um, And, you know, seeing that these farmers were putting in extra work, um, they were really adding value to their product and not getting paid for it, Um, you know, but the the elevator was actually marketing it as such and getting paid more for it. Um, to me, it, it wasn't fair. I felt like that 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 needed to be passed on to the to the to the seller as well, you know. And that's that's really how it started. So, give people an idea of those elevators, and not that they were necessarily doing something wrong, but what is it that they were taking advantage of that the farmer wasn't, but they could pass that along as added value down the chain? Sure. So, just uh, a real quick example: um, yellow peas. Um, you don't get paid for split peas uh, in your sample. Um, 
but then they'll turn around and sell it to somebody who's going to turn around and split them anyway, uh, and they get paid for it. You know, so it's it's little things like that. And there's people looking for certain grades of of uh, of grain that you know they'll they'll pay you know normal price for it if there's something wrong with it. It's 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 finding the right buyer is what it is. Okay, so you see this opportunity here. Does that then lead you to begin a company, or how do you then begin to get into this to create value for farmers, or even yourself, because you're out there farming too? Sure. So um, our other co-founder is a friend of mine that I met in the Air Force uh, about 20 years ago, and uh, he uh, he had a consulting business, and I helped him out with that. Um, and he heard our idea, you know, when we were talking about when I was working at the grain elevator, um, he he thought it was a great idea and he's really the one who ran with it. And, and I, I just head up the operations and make sure it works. <laughs> so how long have you been in business and then what are you doing then? We actually started in 2018. Um, we just recently did a soft launch. Um, we started uh, doing a few test transactions. We're metering transactions right now. We just, if there's going to be something wrong, we don't want it to you know, blow up right away. So uh, very soon we will be doing a full launch. So walk me through the process then. Let's say I'm a farmer and you mentioned peas there before. So if I have that then, how do you begin this process of assigning uh, this information, a non-fungible token to that grain and and beginning that process? Uh, How do you do that with a farmer? Sure. So in order to list a product on the platform, the the very minimum that you have to have is a grade. And uh, we use Eurofins Labs. Um, so every product that is sold on our platform goes through Eurofins Labs. And that's for consistency. Um, you know, even even state-to-state grain labs are different. Uh, they're not supposed to be, but they end up to be. Um, and, and that's what we do. So once you list your product, you have... All that information, whether you said it was organic, you're going to have an organic cert with that product. If you say it's chemical-free, you're going to have a chemical test with that product. And that is actually passed along with that that semi-load of grain all the way to the end consumer. So if I take that semi-load of grain to an elevator and I have that information with it, how does that stay, in a sense, with that load of grain through the whole process so that by the time a consumer gets it, they know exactly where it came from? So our biggest users are not elevators. Uh, they're usually processors, and they don't have a lot of, a lot of storage space. Um, and that's actually how we do it. We, actually, we use QR codes, um, and we're actually working on a, uh, a certification of our own that we're able to pass along. And with those QR codes, um, if they do mix semi-loads, then it goes to a mother code. Um, so it's really kind of a tree. And when it comes down to food traceability and, um, you know, contamination, uh, we're able to trace it back to the origination very quickly. A lot farther, a lot faster than we were when I worked at the elevator. How do you guarantee that the information you begin with is the right information? Because the information is only as good as what's inputted. So if I'm looking at that down the, the road, how do I know that what was originally inputted is correct? That's why we use Eurofins Labs. They, any test that you have completed, they put on your listing for you. Uh, they have the actual sample, um, and that's what gets passed along with it. So really there's very little chance of any tampering from the beginning. You mentioned something interesting there. You said, well, so far the elevators aren't been the one using it, but it's more the processors. Is that because the processors are receiving demand from consumers? Or where where does this come from that people say, okay, I want to do this and I can get value out of this? So it's it's their consumers that are demanding more information of of their 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 food. Um, so if we have this QR code on a bag and they can see everything where that grain came from and they can see 
the route it took to get there, where it was processed, what was used on it, uh, that adds value and, and people will pay extra for that. And it's passed along to the farmer. People may say, I don't know of any place that's using that right now. I'm betting you're going to tell me, oh, there are. You just haven't looked. Is that right? That's right. Um, and, and, you know, this is, this is something that is uh, behind the scenes. Um, you know, there's actually quite a few companies out there using this, and, and you don't know about it. Um, and probably never will. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a, it's a way that we're able to trace things and add value to your product without everybody else knowing how we're doing it. At this point, can producers get a premium for what they're growing by using this? Where do we stand as far as being able to take advantage of it that way? Well, they can. We actually are selling to quite a few uh, pet food companies. Um, everybody, it was funny, when I worked at the elevator, our our specifications for shipping to a pet food company were actually higher than when we shipped to human consumption. So <laughs> people care more about their dogs than themselves. And uh that's yeah they're paying more for it because they're able to charge more for it Um, you mentioned that this was mostly pulse crops to begin with how far behind are we on what we consider regular commodities corn soybeans these type of things has it been mostly specialty crops at this point and and if so how long before we would see it more widely adopted for us it's just been pulse crops uh and a couple oil seeds we're doing flax and canola as well um i don't think it's far off it's just that those are uh, mass traded commodities whereas uh, pulse crops are cash and that's the reason we started with where we're at um, really didn't want to get crushed by any giants out there <laughs> to begin with and it turns out that a lot of them are actually wanting to start using our platform to source their grain so yeah it's not far off at all you mentioned something about processors have smaller bins or so forth handle smaller lots so it's easier to do just in this role behind the scenes i've heard different processors large ones tell me We're going to go to a day in which you don't want the big grain bins. You want smaller because we're going to be doing this. Do you see that coming, or how is this going to begin to play out as we go down the road as far as what should farmers be aware of that they may be seeing here before long? I I do see that coming, Um, and a lot of the pulse crop growers do know that. Uh, You know, a lot of them will put it in uh, hopper bottom bins and and put their wheat in a flat bottom bin. You know, they take extra care of their pulse crops, and I think that these buyers are doing the same as well. And it's easier for traceability to keep them in small lots. So that's why a lot of these buyers are using, you know, smaller bins and, and... you know, easier for them to market with the traceability. Right now, the traceability begins, I guess, after the harvest. So I've got it on a truck. Do you see a time, though, that we even get this to where the combine is reporting to where it got the grain and it goes on the truck? I've heard these types of stories. Are you seeing that already? We're, that's, that's down the road. You know, I don't want to give away too much. That is some, <laughs> that's definitely something we're looking at, yes. All right. So yeah. we can expect combines to talk to trucks and so forth. Then. Well, and they're already starting in some areas, you know, and, uh, you know, a partnership that we had with a logistics company, they're actually tracing the trucks out of the field to the bin uh, for us. And that's how we're now getting the complete transparency of traceability from the field. We mentioned the consumer there earlier. I'm interested. Do you think that it is truly consumers that want the information? And will we eventually see that just standard on on all crops or all foods and things we eat? I'm just interested in the demand and, and, and where that's all coming from. I think it's uh, it's a new generation. Uh, millennials want to know where their food comes from. I'm borderline millennial. I'm right on the right on the the year '82. Um, you know, so they want to know where their food comes from, and it's getting to be a growing concern with everybody. And I do see that becoming more and more prevalent across the industry. Yes. 
you have cattle as well. So talk about it on the cattle side. You have done some of this, but I don't know if your company specifically works in cattle, but yet you've used this in cattle, correct? Yes, and it was actually, we sell on a video auction. Um, and it was a few years back that one of our buyers actually required that we put a chip in the ear, and that was for the same same idea. And we do not we do not do cattle at this time, though. But you did it as far as a grower then is what you were doing. Right, as yeah. a producer myself, yeah. yes. You know, people listening to this will say, okay, well, that technology's been around for a while. And they may say, well, that never took off. So does that mean that I should expect that, okay, this may flounder around for a while? Or how do you see it? Because cattle producers have known about RFID tags for a long time. Yeah, and it, it, I don't think... Um I think it's actually being used far more than people realize, um, and it is starting to take off. And I think, you know, once, once farmers are figuring out that they're making more money for their product, it's, it's going to take off like wildfire. And, I mean, you know as well as I do, farmers look over the fence, and, and you know, if he's cutting, if he started cutting today, I'm going to start cutting mine too. And it's probably going to be too wet, but <laughs> that's how it works. <laughs> right. People will always wonder about privacy concerns and so forth. So... Should I be worried? Because this is now I'm putting a tracking device, in a sense, on everything that I grow. I do, there's, there's no concern with privacy. Um, you do own your own data. Um, I think that this is actually one of the more secure ways to secure your data uh, rather than pass along paperwork or mail paperwork. Um, this, is, this is far more secure than what we're, we've been using in the past. Why is this different? It kind of takes us back to where we started. Why is a non-fungible token different than what we have done in the past? It's it's a it's a, a ledger that's going to follow that the entire way. So imagine sending a piece of paper with with your grain, um, and everyone who touches it is going to put their signature on it. This is just faster and and far more reasonable time time wise. I mean, it's it's quick, it's instant, and and you know exactly where it came from. So if people are wondering more about this or how to connect with you and, and your company, how do they do that? Yeah, uh, check out our website, ngf-global.com, and check out our contact us. There's, uh, there's emails and, and uh, a 1-800 number. Very good. I appreciate the time. Thank you very much. In the second half of this week's show, we focus on Farmer Mac's annual ag lender survey, which measures the pulse of the ag economy by surveying those who are lending to farmers. This year's questions perhaps held some answers you'd expect and a few surprises. Jackson Takish is chief economist at Farmer Mac, and he shared the results of the recent Ag Bankers Conference in Omaha. Not only did he reveal the results of that research, but he also gave a perspective on what we can expect in the farm economy in 2023 and beyond. Jackson, you just released an Ag Lender survey. Perhaps you want to just give people a little background on what that is first, and then we'll dive into what it showed us. Uh, you, you bet. So, so the uh, ABA Farmer Mac Ag Lender Survey. It's an annual effort that uh, Farmer Mac and the ABA team, research teams put out into the field, and we ask lenders all sorts of questions about what they're seeing with their customers. So, what's the farm economy look like? What are the expectations on profitability, land values? A whole host of questions around the farm economy. We also ask about lending conditions. So are they seeing changes in competition or what are their expectations on interest rates and what are the uh, effects on loan demand? All those sorts of questions about their lending uh, habits. And then maybe the third avenue is specialty topics. So it could be rural infrastructure. This is what we focused on uh, most recently, but anything between that, policy changes, crop insurance, all those sorts of things. We want to know what lenders are seeing out there, how they're feeling about things, so that we can take that information and share it with policymakers and researchers, uh, and that you know, ag lenders really have a voice in that process. 
So I took several notes, but before I jump into that, I'm interested, what did you think jumped out at you in this survey, or did anything? Is it pretty much, okay, this is what I expected, or were some things that surprised you? I'd say a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. So the expected profitability expectations on the farm were up. So in general, Ag Lenders said uh, when asked what percentage of your borrowers are going to be profitable this year, 82% on average said they're going to be profitable. So we had you know very high numbers there compared to 2019, 2020 levels. Uh, very expected considering where commodity prices are. Uh, and we haven't quite seen that run up in expenses. It's coming, but we haven't seen it yet. Uh, maybe the unexpected part was just how much they expected that inflation to eat into those profits next year. So when asked about the next 12 months, what percentage are going to remain profitable, that fell to almost 70%. So we went from 82% to 70% on average. And that has to do with their concern around inflation and the costs of feed, seed, interest, all those things rising and eating into that profitability. So when you ask what is the biggest concern, is it inflation that was on the survey? Absolutely. And that's consistent with last year. So so lenders kind of saw this in, in the fall of 2021. They said, hey, we see some pressures coming on those farm expenses. We think that's going to be the thing that really disrupts us compared to you know prior surveys. We've seen more things about uh, prices, right, revenues, or you know things around the farm profitability more more affecting the revenue side of the shops. This was the first time we started to see those inflationary pressures rise to the top. So two years in a row, number one concern is going to be that inflationary pressure. Do you find when you look back after a year of doing these surveys, do you find that? The ag lenders were pretty accurate in what they forecast. For instance, this year they said we were going to be over 80% profitable. Did they say that last year, <laughs> looking ahead? Or how optimistic were they in previous years? So on that particular question, great. It's an interesting uh, question that you asked. On that one, they tend to be a little pessimistic after the, you know, when they think about the next 12 months, there's always going to be something that's going to throw off some customers. And I think that's a healthy way to approach it, right? Like we're not just going to see green pastures and blue skies forever. There's going to be things that affect the certainty of those profits. Um, so, you know, this year is no different. You kind of see, hey, things are pretty good. 21, they said things are pretty good. Next year, we think it's going to get worse. It didn't. So those numbers came back up and they said, hey, next year we expect these inflationary pressures to start to eat in. And you look at the history of farm expenses, about year three in an expansion is when they start to eat into profits. So I think this time they might have, uh, they might be on to something. Well, let me jump from the survey for just a second. You mentioned that. Is that a trend that we should, obviously we're thinking about it because we have had very good profits. So when does this begin to catch up with us and we begin to slide down the other side of this hill? Well, historically, you look at a couple of periods where there were really strong profits followed by really strong increases in farm expenses. You're looking at the 70s and then again in, say, 2008 to 2014. So those are the two periods where massive increase in farm revenue followed by, you know, a massive increase in farm expenses. Uh, There tends to be about a year or two delay from when those two things start. So if we rewind the clock and we're looking at 2020 as the first year that things started to, to uptick, 2022 would be the year you start to see those farm expenses rise, which we saw. And then it takes about four more years to get all the way through that cycle of farm expense increases. So I think that's what we have to look forward to uh, a little bit is things like uh, seed costs rising, rent costs rising, labor costs rising. Those things haven't really taken off yet. And that's what I think we're going to be looking at in the next two to three years. Speaking of things rising, we had land costs in this survey. And I was interested that it seems like you got somewhat mixed results in what people think either they're experiencing now or will experience on these land prices. Yeah, when you ask them what happened in the last 12 months, the, you know, I think the response was unanimous. Land values went up. When you ask about the next 12 months, what do you think is going to happen to land values? The average response was 3%. We think it's going to rise, 
by 3%. When you break that down, you see this really interesting dispersion around, uh, uh, you know, about a third of respondents say zero. We think the answer is zero. Like we're not going to see any change in land values. A third say we're going to see 10 plus percent increase in land values. And very few people see, you know, negative changes or, you know, kind of that in the middle range. It tends to be either zero or 10 plus. Uh, I think that speaks to some of the volatility that borrowers, lenders, I mean, the whole world is kind of facing with uh, interest rates, uh, you know, global economic slowdowns, you know, U.S. economic slowdown, all that stuff creates not just, it's not dissent, but it's just not a, a unified view of the future. So you see that bifurcation of your responses. And some people think it's going to be great. And some people think it's going to be a little bit steady, steady as she goes. Uh, and they both could be right, depending on what part of the country you're in and uh, uh, what happens with farm revenue. So if they said steady at worst, let's say, and and this is in the face of rising interest costs, and, you know, we look over to the housing market, it certainly had an effect there. So why do we think we will see as much in the land market? Is that because farmers have been able to build up enough capital they can just still go out and purchase the land? Or does this begin to catch up with us looking down the road? So it's it's a column A, column B again, right? So we've got a lot of liquidity out there on the farm. So a couple of good years of working capital recharge from uh, profits or some government programs that kind of recharge the balance sheet a little bit in 2020 and 21. Uh, so there's a lot of cash kind of out there. And what do farmers like to buy? They like to buy land. So when that property comes up, there's still a lot of active bidders on uh, parcels. And that takes a while to work through all that liquidity. So that's one area where it's going to be, you know, land values are still going to trade pretty high until that liquidity is gone. Um, and then I think it takes a few years for higher interest rates to really impact land values. Great piece of research out of uh, some researchers at Iowa State looked at that uh, relationship between monetary policy and land values, particularly Midwestern land values. And they found a pretty big de- delay in tightening or loosening a monetary policy and when that works its way all the way through to the farm. Another piece of the survey was released in talking about inflation and specifically a conversation about the Fed's target of 2% inflation. How realistic is that? And why will we or not see that rate for a while? Yeah, 2% is going to be very difficult. If you look at sort of the Goldilocks period where we were uh, exporting a lot of our inflation. So labor moving overseas, production moving overseas. We saw technology increase productivity here. We could, you know, have everything delivered to our home. Uh, All that really dropped our costs as consumers. So it's going to be hard to replicate that going forward. And you start to say, well, what's a realistic target for inflation? And then you get into that, you know, hey, maybe three or 4% is a more realistic long-term target for inflation. So if we see some of those trends, what does that mean for agriculture moving down the road? Certainly we may not see as good of profits or as you know, big as margins. Do you see it tightening? Are we headed backwards? What do we see down the road? A lot will depend on demand. So that's going to be the thing that to watch. I think for sure you're going to see a tightening up of the, the inflation, you know, inflationary pressures on inputs. That's going to be go- rising. So the question is, can demand hold up uh, both globally and you know domestically to support the prices that we're seeing today? And I, and I think the answer is in 23, yes. I think you you know you start to look at 24 and 25, a lot can change in a year or two. Um, so those are going to be the things to watch. You know, I, I, interest rates are likely to stay high as the Fed fights in you know you know more general inflation, not just input price inflation. But interest rates are going to stay high. 
expenses are going to rise. So what happens to keep those uh, commodity prices high? And that's what we're going to keep an eye on. What do lenders have to say as far as credit risk and, and the mix of quality of loans out there? Anything to stand out in that part of the survey? Yeah, I, I think they really picked up on this profitability, kind of works its way through the loan performance o- over time. So the expectations are, hey, we're seeing an improvement in credit quality. Loans are paying. Loans have just refinanced through one of the greatest refi booms in ag history. Uh, so the performance is going to maintain its really good levels today. So we're kind of back to historically good credit quality. Uh, when you ask what, ha- what about the next 12 months, you kind of see a mix. Like So there is some of that expectation of, hey, maybe the higher interest rates are going to cause some stress, or maybe those higher input costs are going to cause some stress, but nowhere near the level of fallout we saw, say, in 2016, 17, 18, when commodity prices plummeted, and there was just a lot more pessimism about the uh, future. Anything else from the lender survey that stands out to you or you want to share? Because uh, you always ask a lot of questions and always interesting data to look at. Well, there was so much to read. I, I highly encourage all of your uh, listeners to go out and, and pick up the report. It's on Farmer Max website. It's also on the ABA website. Uh, I will say, you know, you look at what are lenders most concerned about. So what are, you know, not just their borrowers or what's happening on the farms. Uh, it's a lot to do with interest rate volatility. So getting a handle on what that means for my loan demand. It's a lot to do with competition. So increased competition for those borrowers who are out there. Fewer borrowers are buying loans or buying farms. There's fewer loans and more people chasing those loans. So competition becomes a big concern. And then credit quality becomes kind of that third thing that's uh, sitting on the back of people's minds. Jackson, I always appreciate the time. Hey, thank you. That's it for this week's show. Remember, if you've not done so already, you can follow Farming the Countryside on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We're always using those social media platforms to share more information, pictures, and videos during the week. And you can hear these programs in a variety of ways as well at farmingthecountryside.com, on many local radio stations, or on your favorite podcast platform. I'm Andrew McRae. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. This edition of Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to a better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com.